Lonely Monk Productions. I don't know if y'all have heard Heidi Ho by Jack White featuring Q-Tip yet, but yo! That's my joy! That's my joy! What's good, friends and family, neighbors, near and far? Welcome to an all-new episode of the Yo, That's My John podcast. The podcast, website, brand, movement, way of life, dedicated to the embrace and championing of your passions. I'm your host, Nate Runkle, a.k.a. Obi-John Kenobi, a.k.a. The Bruno We Do Talk About, a.k.a. Nate 3.0, back at it again with yet another episode of the podcast. As always, I hope this podcast finds you all in good health and in in good spirits. On today's episode, I have an epic conversation with Andy King. I've been trying to make this interview happen since the very beginning of the podcast, and as a matter of fact, my desire to interview Andy, as you will hear, was the birth of the idea of this podcast being conversations with musicians about their lives and their careers. So I'm incredibly honored to chat today with the cat who inspired it all, and that is coming up in a bit. Well, what's shaking, homies? You know, the daylight has been saved, and we are now one step closer to springtime. And boy, it cannot come soon enough. Spring means I get to get back out on the disc golf course. You know, I've said it time and again on here, and I'm sure you're familiar, but I am a disc golfer. Disc golf is how I got to know Andy. And so many other incredible people, including a gentleman by the name of Dave Cox. Dave is a fellow disc golfer who in the past few years has picked up photography and his work. It just keeps getting better and better. Well, I mention this because Dave is the photographer who took the photo of Andy that graces the cover of the episode of this podcast. You can find Dave's photos at www.coxpix.com. That's a... that's C-O-X Cox, coxpicks.com. Don't, don't misspell that. I, I, I don't want to know where you might end up if you do. But as I said earlier, wanting to chat with Andy was one of the main influences on my decision to start this podcast. And having this conversation had me in a bit of a nostalgia kick. So I went back to the beginning of the Yo, That's My John website. You know, I've told the tale time and again to various guests about how it was Robin's dancing on my own that got me to want to create this space. But, you know, one of the things I've never shared on the podcast was the first post that I wrote for the site. It was kind of my mission vision statement, if you will, a post that laid out what I believe this project could become. And a good portion of it has been realized by the many episodes of this podcast. But I want to share it here with you today, not just to Martin Luther, my treatise on the front door of the podcast, but also to remind myself of what I want and know this all can be. And so here's the first piece I wrote for the Yo, That's My John website entitled Our Life Together. Our life together is so precious. Together we have grown. We have grown. It's in every step I take. From the way I wear my hat to my desire to not only rock and roll all night, but also find a way to party every day. I am a street-walking cheetah with a heart full of napalm, born to run like a bat out of hell, fueled entirely by one thing. Music. It's been there whenever I need it. Music would always find me. 
in the happiest moments of my life that I never wanted to end, to my saddest moments of despair that seemed like they never would. It can raise me up to heights unknown to us common earth folk far outside of our stratosphere, but it can just as powerfully send me crashing down in the kind of flat spin that cost us goose so many moons ago. It owns me, mind, body, and soul, and I would have it no other way. Surrounded by the people I love, music has been there, alone. Unsure if I can make it one more day, music has been there. It has taught me love, it has taught me hate. It has taught me obsession, it has taught me forgiveness. It has taught me how to feel, taught me how to remember, taught me how to forget. Music has been such an important part of my life, riding shotgun through the grand universe of the day-to-day, never knowing where we're headed, but knowing that when we got there, we'd have gotten there together. But something happened. I don't know when and I don't know why, but music climbed into the back seat, still in the car with me and still there for the journey, but no longer my co-pilot charting our course, no longer reading the map and telling me where to go, how to go. Music went from being an active sidekick, the Ernie Reyes Jr. to my Gil Gerard, to more of a passive passenger, quiet so often that at times I find myself offering a fatherly, you all right back there, bud? Sometimes I can hear music singing along from behind me, but most days I just see it when I peer into my rear view, humming along to its own song, gazing out the window, trying to figure its own things out. We're still close, we always will be, and we still talk. But we're just not as tight as we used to be. Ooh, growing up. Adulting. Yeah, life. Yeah, at some point, I reached a certain age where time hit a gulf stream-like current and is now seemingly blowing by with every blink of the eye. Or maybe it has nothing to do with age. Maybe it's just how things are now, especially with music. Everything happens so fast with no time to devour and savor stop and replay and stop and replay and stop and replay on a seemingly never-ending loop and why would we want it to end you know until you can tell yourself that you finally understand exactly why your new favorite singer chose to audibly exhale in that one small moment before the second chorus you know that that moment of pure imperfect vulnerability where they decided to let it all hang out There has to be a reason she or he or they left it there intentionally. Not for the casual listener, but for us. The ones who were not just listening, but really listening. The ones who wanted to understand. The only ones who could understand. The dreamers and the forlorn. This wasn't for the dilettantes. This was for us. Yes, I am now singing the jaded, cynical reprise of The Old Man, a walking cliché bathed in the warm remembrance of a time when, quote-unquote, things were better, and, dare I say it, quote-unquote, back in my day. But I swear, dear reader, I swear I'm not that guy. I can't be that guy wearing his death's head belt buckle, pining for yesterday's dreams, can I? Too old to rock and roll, but too young to die? Maybe. Maybe I am. But you know what? I don't want to be. I want to rock! God damn it! All praise be to D. Snyder. That, my friends, is where this blog comes in. This website. This media network. This daydream that I cooked up and have been kicking around my stupid ADD-infested brain. Whatever this ends up being. Yo, that's my John. It's been dying to get out. I want to talk about music. I want to make music. I want to tell music, hey man, 
How about you come back up in the front seat of this car and take that seat next to me that you've always belonged in while I roll down the windows and crack open the sunroof so the whole damn world can hear us belting out Heartbeat It's a Love Beat by the DeFranco family at the top of our lungs. Unafraid to show the world that, yes, we're crazy, but we're crazy together. In good or bad weather, happy or sad, every goddamn single day of our lives. This is going to be my happy little space to share my love of music. A place to put some album reviews, be it a new release or some back catalog gem that's been stuck on repeat in my headphones for the past 17 years or something that changed my life. I want to share some songs that I wrote in another life when I played the role of aspiring musician that I was too shy or too self-conscious to let anyone listen to for fear that they might hate it or, worse yet, they might like it. I want to deconstruct the earworms that continuously threaten to colonize my brain and try to find a way to evict them from my head. I want to talk about the industry, and I want to talk about what's moving me and what isn't. But most importantly, I want to have a discussion. Look, I'll be the first to admit how masturbatory all this is. Listen to me! Listen to what I want to listen to! Oh, the cleverness of me! I don't expect you to hang on my every word, and if we're being completely honest, I truly don't expect you to have read this far. But maybe something will catch your eye and you'll think, hey, someone else likes that song too, or you've gotta be kidding me, this is garbage! Or maybe I turn you on to something you never even knew existed, I don't know. But what I do know is I have had a lifelong love affair with music, and it is time I pay it the respect it deserves. I still love you, music. I just hope that you still love me. My guest today is a musician, a producer, a singer, a songwriter, a disc golfer. He is a former member of Philly Legends' The Hooters, where he co-wrote the song Carla with a K and sang lead on their cover of the Beatles classic Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds and played bass throughout the 80s. He has played with the bands Jack of Diamonds, The Rhythm Cats Review, Moving Day, and has also played with fellow Hooters member David Osikinen and his In the Pocket project. He also released a beautiful solo album entitled Spiritual Preschool, showcasing the brilliant songwriting that went unused during his tenure with the Hooters. He is performing this Saturday, March 19th at The Living Room at 35 East in Ardmore, PA. Tickets are available at thelivingroom at 35east.com. Folks, it is my honor to welcome to the show, Andy King. All right, ladies and gentlemen, I am joined today by the great Andy King. Andy, thank you for joining me here on Yo, That's My John. It's a pleasure, man. Thanks for having me. So, um, you know, this has been a a long time coming. We've been trying to do this for a little bit of time. Uh, I had some major flooding in the studio area last year when we were going to try to do it before the last show. And now I'm glad we're finally here. But I get to tell you, you know, um, you were actually partially the inspiration for this show, which is one of the reasons why I wanted to get you on here. And that's because... um, I want to say, so like I started all this during the pandemic. All right. I've been trying to, you know, get into this. And one of the inspirations um, for this idea was the post you made about the anniversary of Live Aid. 
Mm-hmm. And um, and it was just such a, such an amazing like concise story, you know, in a in a in a Facebook post. And I was like, man, I need to talk to Andy about all of this uh, stuff. Like he's got all of this crazy. And then I was like, oh man, an interview show where I interview musicians that I know and stuff like that and all. And so Ooh. like so literally, your post was the inspiration <laughs> for this whole podcast. So so thank you not just for doing this, but for the inspiration. Cool, man. Well, you know, I. Uh... I think part of the reason the the post was good is because I I journal. I've been like as of late, not so much. Honestly, the last like eight or nine years, not so much. But I've always had journals like pretty much through high school. You know, not every day, but enough days where you sort of can see progress and 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 I just am amazed at how a few words can like open up so many synapses. You don't have sure. to like you don't have to write everything down, but just like one like you know, then the butterfly flew in, you know, it's just like it explodes the whole memory bank. So with Live Aid, I have a, a pretty good entry about it. You know, when I was exhausted the next night after not sleeping for like three days. And um, yeah, so I think that's partially why it was, you know, the, 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 de- the details were kind of good. Yeah. You know, you the know- one thing I didn't, li- I never talked about was Sean Penn and Madonna being douchebags, like the only, on- the, literally the only entourage backstage i mean really? led zeppelin standing right there and all of a sudden it's like <laughs> people pushing and like dudes in a circle around him and it's sean penn and madonna and sean penn has a leather fucking jacket on and it's 190 out you know oh my god and like, i got kind of elbowed out of the way and <laughs> this being of that jimmy page's girl i don't know who she was and i'm probably gossiping horrifically <laughs> but he was with this youngest girl let's let me just put it that way who had on like four inch heels and the whole backstage area of live aid was um, pebbles. Like, like, I guess they just put down like a layer of like four inches, like exactly the heel height of her <laughs> heels was how much so she's walking around in the back of the back of her shoes are sinking down the whole time. Anyway, sorry. That's incredible. You know, it's 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 funny you say that about, you know, journaling and words and stuff like that, just firing off the synapses, because I read this study recently that um, they think memory begins when you start to understand language and you can assign words to mm-hmm. different things. And that's essentially what commits things to memory. So, you know, it is totally true, though. Like, you can read just the littlest thing, and it's like, oh, my God, I remember the three weeks after that or what. Yeah, yeah. And you just reminded me of a thing I do that kind of freaks out Anne and people I go out with. I'll always ask a server their name. And, like, the next time we'll go back, a lot of times, I'll remember. Because my dad taught me a trick. When you meet somebody, you say their name right away, and you look for a physical feature. Like anything, it doesn't have to, but just pick something and, and lock on the name with that thing and then try to use their name again when you're conversing and then use their name again when you say goodbye. And it's amazing how that, you know, you're talking about it, locking on, it gives it something to latch on to. And uh, I think that's really true. That's wild. Yeah. You know, I'm terrible with names, so I should try some of those tricks. <laughs> Give it a go, man. You know, like say the person's name, like, hi, Bob. How are you? Nice to meet you. So, like, so Bob, how do you know people here? And then, hey, Bob, good to meet you. And, then and those three things in him, you pick out like his left eyebrows a little bushier, you know, <laughs> and then when you see it in his bushy eyebrow, yeah, Bob. Oh, that's <laughs> oh, <it's laughs> awesome. So tell me a little bit about uh, growing up. Where did you grow up? Where were you uh, born? Born in Massachusetts, Springfield, home of the original Friendly Ice Cream Store. Like Very we cool. used to go to the Friendly, the Friendly Brother, the guys who ran it. And uh, 
what became fribbles used to be called awful awfuls, awful big and awful good. <laughs> oh, that's and awesome. I, dude, I so remember going to friendlies and for the first time being allowed to get my own awful awful. Cause a lot of times they would just give you a little side cup. And so I don't know, I was like four or five. And I just remember literally reaching up onto the counter at friendlies and bringing that giant thing down, you know, and then you look at a fribble glass, they're still pretty big. Yeah. When you're little. Anyway, so born in Springfield and lived there for the first five years. And then we moved into Ambler. Oh, and, no kidding. Uh, yeah, like Morris Road and Butler Pike, basically. What and, um uh, what year what year was the move to Ambler? I'm I have family that's from here, so uh sixty three. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So Wonder, uh, uh yeah, we went to Germantown Academy right down the street. So that was a short little commute. And um yeah, you know, I'm really lucky, dude. I, I totally get that I hit the lottery in terms of like being born when and where and, and to what. And, you know, and I'm so thankful that, you know, parents have sent me to a good school and gave us a great environment and gave us, you know, guitar and bass, you know, like, go ahead and give it a shot. You know, yeah. so we were that kind of house where the third floor was a noisy mess, but <laughs> our parents were cool with us having drums and bass up there and just smashing things. That's cool. You're you're the third of five, is that right? Yeah. I have two and, older brothers. My brother Josh is a assistant director in LA, works major motion films. And uh my brother Chris is a writer. Um my sister Tracy, I have twin and younger sisters, Tra- Tracy and Amy. And Tracy produced the Conan O'Brien show for a bunch no of years. Way. She started with him in his first year. She was like basically an intern. And just stayed with him, stayed with him, and kept rising up till she was one of the main three producers on the show. That's unbelievable. Yeah, you know, and she had a great run with that. And uh, my other sister Amy is an artist and a an instru- a horse a riding instructor. Oh, that's incredible! A yeah. lot of lot of creativity there. What was what was the uh, what was the music like? What were your parents listening to? Like, what what kind of music was around the house? You know, my fir- one of my first memories musical memories is the Beatles, not the Ed Sullivan thing. I, you know, that was, I was a little too young for that, you know, to, to really lock in. But around that time, hearing their song, A Taste of Honey, which is like, wasn't a big song and it's kind of quiet, but I remember my mom really liking it. And so she's like, well, this is the one I like. And she put it on. And I just, you know, that really hit me. So, you know, my dad was always just humming, you know, so he had the, Whatever it was, he had a little bit of a thing inside him and he would, you know, had his little internal beat. And uh, yeah, so after, but, you know, once we started getting like the teen years, you know, it was a crazy time in music. There was so much exploding, you know, and, but I remember being kind of scared of hippies, you know, I was about, I was like nine or 10, you know, and suddenly, I don't know, there was something about it just made me a little uncomfortable. It seemed kind of, I don't know, I don't know. I don't know what it was being an innocent kid from a, you know, suburb. And I don't know. It just struck me as kind of dirty and like, I don't know. Anyway. So that music was exploding, you know, and, and hearing Led Zeppelin for the first time, I was like, Whoa, like that's heavy. You know, like that's, that is not the bubblegum music that was on radio, you know, cause the radio said, show your, you know, then you hear Zeppelin compared to that. Um, yeah, but we like a lot of stuff. We we love Dave Mason. Uh, we love Loggins and Messina. I mean, but I think Loggins and Messina was kind of like our Dave Matthews band. Sure. When you would go see them, they would 
stretch stuff out and just play, you know, like the musicianship and, and dynamics and, you know, songs being 18 minutes long because of jams. And but we, Jim Messina was like one of our f- first early guitar players that were like, that's, you know, you know, it's Messina within like five or six notes just because of the way he plays, the way he attacks. And, uh, and I was like, I liked Rush, you know? Oh my God. The first one, 2112 was the first album of theirs that I heard. And my brother, my older brother used to give me so much shit for that. Eh, 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 it sounds like a girl, blah, blah, blah. But, you know, eventually he became like a huge fan and like had DVDs of their concert in Brazil. And so, uh, yeah, we had a wide variety of stuff. And, and luckily there was enough of us that it wasn't really till we got to be like late teens that we really started playing. Yeah. Part of it being um, this guy, Eddie McKendry, um, was from a family that his mother died and his father wouldn't let him play music. Like literally your guitar is going out or you're going out. So he moved in with us and so we already had five kids. So what's, you know, what's another, he can grab a bunk bed. And, um, but he was a guitar player, like a savant or not savant, but a prodigy. I mean, at 14, you know, he was shredding and, and, and learning on Allman brothers and Peter Frampton. So his melodic styling was just really unique and really intense. And he basically taught me how to play guitar. And, you know, I think without Eddie, I don't think, I would have had the musical journey that I've I've had, you know, he sort of made it real in a way, like you can do this, you know, here's how you do it. And so I'm really thankful to him. And I still, he's playing with me at the living room on the 19th. Oh, cool. Yeah. We're, we're doing it together. So that's a kind of a nice full circle circle thing, you know, bringing around and still playing with Eddie. So. You yeah. will uh you will have to ask him if he remembers me because we actually uh played Tex Mex together a few times. So. <laughs> ah, I will. Right. Yeah, then, you yeah, know yeah. Eddie Eddie is like one of those dudes who's like a human jukebox. Yes. Like he can play anything you need almost throw any song at him and he'll be able to fake his way through it. And um I'm the exact opposite. <laughs> if, if I'm not currently playing something it's a I'm the same way. Even songs I wrote myself, I have to like relearn every time I go to try to play them. Like it's, it's, it's such a challenge. Why do you think they call it dope? That's (laughs) (laughs) so true. It's so true. So, um, so when you, you started playing uh, guitar around then, like, um, did, did you start writing at the same time or were you just kind of doing covers and stuff like that? Um, You know, here's the weird part about it. Eddie was a great guitarist. My brother Chris is a really good drummer, like super good timekeeper. And we had a friend named Jeff Sanders who's a bass player. So I was always kind of like the JV, you know, like those guys were the, the, when when it was going to really happen, those guys were playing. So I always had a bit of a complex isn't the right word, but I always felt like a little inferior. You know, because sure. I had new musicians really close to me that were doing stuff that I couldn't. And, you know, um, so anyway, yeah, we, I was I was didn't start writing until I got an acoustic guitar when I was going off to college. And, you know, I kind of played a little bass. I play, kind of played a little guitar. I'm actually a pretty solid drummer. And um, but when I bought the acoustic, it was like then it became much more intimate. You know, it's yeah. just like you know, and the feeling of having an acoustic guitar held against you while the strings vibrate. I mean, I always tell people, like, you don't have to be able to do too much because honestly, 
a CD, C, G, and D. It's like, there's something about those changes that are just like, and having it be next to you and resounding. And, uh, you know, that's the biggest blessing of playing is just getting to be part of that vibration as hippie as that sounds, but it's, it's kind of really true. You know, it's like, it is vibrations being heard by other people's ears and you're kind of part of the projection machine. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, so here's, here's a, here's a, you just kind of sparked something that I've, I've always wanted to ask people and I always forget to ask and you just reminded me of it. And now I'm glad, I'm so glad. Um, do what, what's your home chord? So like, if you pick up a guitar, what's the first thing you're going to hit? It's kind of like a, a modified F it's like F without your middle finger down. Okay. Cause it just, it rings and there's, you know, a little bit of dissonance, but a, you know, a little bit of tension. Okay. That's really, I mean, it's like possibility. Yeah, I like it. Mine's mine's a G chord. And that's why I found it so fascinating because like I started like watching people like when they pick up a guitar and what their first thing is and you know somebody'll hit an A and someone and I was like, "Oh, I wonder if <laughs> I wonder if there's uh, it's like a thumbprint, you know? Like what's your first well, you know, thing?" I'll, I'll take the I'll I change my I change uh, that's chord is the first thing I go to after I know the guitar's in tune. For some reason hitting a G helps me know whether it's in tune or not. So a lot of times I do play a G and I pick it up and I'm like, okay, now it's in tune. Now I can start playing. Yeah. The, um, I, I learned, um, how to play guitar teaching myself. I used to work, um, I don't know if you remember Stewart's music in Lansdale, but, um, mm -hmm. I, I worked in the front of the store while Jim Stewart gave lessons in the back. And, uh, he also, you know, serviced guitars and stuff like that. And every single time he picked up a guitar, he played a C chord. And, and, and then like t played a sequence that was like C, you know, it was C to make sure it was in tune and then would play like a quick little C F G kind of riff. And, right. um, and, and I can't hear a C, I can't tune a guitar without playing that C chord. Like <laughs> it's not my home chord, but that is definitely it's, it's like part of your birthing. It is. It is. It's where it all started. It's where really? it all started. So you go. You go away to University of Delaware. What did you? What did you go there for? You know, I was a kind of a jock in high school, and I played football. I played basketball until my senior year, and then I wrestled because I had a fight with a basketball coach. So I, the wrestling team needed a one eighty seven. So I went and got my ass kicked. Yeah, for a year. You know, I mean, you're wrestling against guys that are like eight inches shorter than me the same way and just like, yeah. And, you know, I'm like, the coach said, if I put my hand, I'm like, you know? <laughs> yeah, but it was a really valuable experience. It was the only like solo sport I ever did, where it's just you sitting there for the whole match, looking across the mat of the dude that, you know, you're going to be wrestling. And, uh, you know, but I, I won three times. So that's something. Hey, there you go. <laughs> um, so I, but lacrosse was my game. I was a oh, really okay. good lacrosse player. Yeah. I was like an all-state lacrosse player and um, was going down to the University of Delaware to play there because my brother Josh was there. So I felt like that'll be a kind of a good intro and I'll social it'll be good to be able to hang with him and meet some people. Um, but when I, when I got to school, it was just like college sports was so much more intense than high school. You know, it was six days a week and it was get on the bus to go down to the field house and, you know, get your ass kicked by guys that are four years older than you have full beards. You know, yeah. it's, it, uh, so I played a year and a half, but at, after my sophomore year in the fall, which had come, I also left school because I was kind of like, all right, well, if I'm not playing lacrosse and I'm not really studying anything particularly except 
learning how to hang out with people. Yeah. Um, you know, so I took a, took a semester off, came home, went to Monco and just took some basic classes and, uh, sort of hit reset and then went back and finished up deciding to be a theater major. Cause I liked lighting design, you know, and so I was a lighting design major and got to do dance and theater and, you know, and actually ended up acting in a couple of things cause they needed a musician. So I played Amy's the minstrel and, uh, uh, as you like it. Oh, you know, cool. And sang blow, blow that winter wind while playing a mandolin. Um, yeah. So I, I went back and had a really good time and was loved doing the theater because it wasn't book studying, you know, it right. wasn't like learn this and barf it up on a test. It was, we have to make this set and we have, you know, 11 weeks to do it and how are we going to do it? So let's plan it out and start making it, you know, so it's cool to learn soldering and, you know, and I think men in general like to build stuff, you know, Definitely. It's, there's just something about it. It's like, it's primal. And um, so, yeah. So, while I was at Delaware, I began to see this band called Jack of Diamonds at the Stone Balloon, which my senior year, we lived across the street from the Stone Balloon. So you can imagine how much we got done. <laughs> um, but when I graduated, I went <laughs> and had the only blackout I've ever had in my entire life because my friend Gina said, here, have a half Quaalude. And oh, so, man. so the last thing I remember is getting up with Jack of Diamonds, just playing tambourine. Like, how you know, this you know, I love these guys. They're letting me on stage. How cool. This is, this is the best thing that's ever going to happen to me. And, um, uh, and, and, but then waking up the next day and being like, yeah, uh, I called my friend Gene. I was like, what happened? He's like, Oh, I just walked you home about an hour later and you were a little goofy, but you went inside and everything was fine. And she called me back 10 minutes later and said, Andy, I just talked to somebody who said they saw you at Kim Perron's house at 3 AM and you were playing guitar and singing and, <laughs> entertaining and apparently i rode my bike there played and rode my bike home locked my bike up up front and four hours later i had no memory of it wow wow <laughs> it could have been but anyway best, could have been the best show ever <laughs> well apparently i was quite charming um uh so anyway jack of diamonds like and like three weeks later when i was graduating their bass player quit and I heard about it and I just basically lied because I was not a bass player. You know, I had, I had played a bass, you know, and we jammed once in a while, but it was, did not consider myself a bass player. I was acoustic guitarist doing like Dan Fogelberg and James Taylor and all, you know, the cover stuff that, that you would do back then. And uh, so I just lied and said, yeah, I have my bass. So that I will, come over here at this time and we'll check it out and tr learn these two songs. And, and at the end they're like, cool, you want to join? And so I had to learn like 45 songs in two weeks on an instrument. I never oh, played God. before. <laughs> oh, God. My, finger, my fingers are like, God, oh, these strings are so big. <laughs> uh, but anyway, that turned, you know, I love Jack of Diamonds. They were when, when I used to go see him, it was like Steely Dan, Little Feet, all these really cool songs. It wasn't like they were, you know, a bar band. They were trying to, trying to make it. And when I joined, yeah. we had just put out a record and tried to do the original thing, but you know, some, some things hit and some don't, but I'm yeah. proud of my time with that band. And we actually opened for the Hooters. At this oh, no North, yeah. in Norristown at this theater. What's it called? I have a poster right over there. 
uh, yeah, but in Norristown. And so I left Jack of Diamonds. I opened for the Hooters acoustically. And then their bass player got in a car accident and was going to be out for like four months. And so I guess I was just kind of fresh in their head. They'd seen me on bass. They've heard me sing and play guitar. And so uh, they called me up and went and auditioned and boom, you know, That's cool crazy. things keep happening. And it's sort of just falling in my lap in a lot of ways. So I'm, I've always been very cognizant of how fate plays a role in how shit can go for you. You know, yeah. you know and I know so many musicians that were so worthy of the kind of success I had, you know, like, like players and their work attitude and how hard they try it. And uh, so I know I'm lucky to have sort of gotten to the other side in a way. Yeah. Yeah. What, um, what, what year did you join the Hooters? Um, uh, it would have been eight, early in 84. Okay. I, got the, I opened for them in December of 83. And then so 84 and was there through, the beginning of 88 okay yeah, yeah. the um good years did, we got signed to columbia we played live aid a lot of good shit happened yeah you um did uh most importantly uh you guys played my high school um i wasn't there for it but it was like like even even by the time i got there like it was still everybody was like you know the hooters played right <laughs> <laughs> that was like call, it, that was huge we called that the lasagna tour uh, because yeah. Every, you know, concert crew, they're like, how many people you have coming in? We're like, well, five guys in the band and like seven crew and a road manager. They're like, what can we make for that many people? Like lasagna. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) It's a lot of lasagna on that tour. Um, One one of the things I noticed um, on the uh, Nervous Night credits is um, the the bass credits are kind of split. How did did that work? Did, Did you come in like in the middle of the recording of that or? Well, you know. I'll be completely honest with you. I didn't play a lick of bass on Nervous Night. Oh, really? Oh, okay. No. Although okay. there was my picture with the name with bass underneath it. Yeah. It was, so that was a little weird, honestly. And then that, you know, doing doing an interview with Bass Magazine and talking yeah. about the record, and I'm like, mm, you know, you, I just kind of couldn't tell the truth. Cause, sure. You know, so it's easier to go, yeah. We, I mean, I know how it was recorded. I know what the bass was. I knew what the amp was. All that stuff. But you know. I, I got it. I understood why, you know, it's Rob and Eric's shot, you know, yeah. and, and so they were going to control it. And, um, and, you know, and Eric had written all the bass parts, cut the demos on the bass and cut the parts really well. So there was kind of no reason for me to, to go in and redo to it. Re-record. So it would be me. Yeah. Okay. So, yeah. You know, I mean, and I, Eric's a really good bass player and I'm, was happy to learn his parts and do the best I could to reproduce him and bring him to life. Oh, that's cool. That's cool. Yeah. So, you know, that, that album comes out and, you know, that's when things start rolling, you know, um, doing, doing some of this research, um, leading into this, I do research from time to time. That's right. That's exactly right. Um, doing some of this research, it's incredible how much happened in like two years, like that it's, and, and, uh, you know, the, it, 
incredibly fast too. Like, um, what, what was, what was that jump kind of like, you know, especially for you, like coming in, like, okay, I'm, I'm not only having to now gel with these guys who I'm just joining, but also I have to do it. Um, and in a year we're going to be in front of like 90,000 people playing to 1.9 billion or whatever life aid was. You well, know? the strange part was, is that a lot of it, it was kind of like carrot and stick for me because I thought I was going to be yanked in four months when really? Rob Miller got better. Yeah. So I spent four months signing posters with his name, his picture on them. <laughs> and it's going, this is not me, Andy King. <laughs> Cause that's all the promotional stuff had Rob on it. Yeah. Um, you know, and then I don't know how the decision came down. I really wasn't privy to that. I just know that at one point they're like, do you want to stay, you know, like for whatever chemistry that happened, I think mostly vocally, yeah. Our, our three voices really just kind of really meshed well. I brought like a sort of a high, high thing to the their two voices, and uh, I think that's probably what it was because Rob Miller is a really good bass player and good looking kid, and you know, so I, I, uh, I was happy. You know, it was nice to, but I think that that spirit of outsideness always kind of stayed with me. And why yeah. eventually, I, you know, I decided to leave the band is because there was always kind of like a a one foot in feeling, and then not being really part of the creative process, which became an issue on the second record. I can understand the first album, you know, right. it's, their, it's their chance to make it to make an impact, and they're going to control it. And I get that, but when you know, we spent nearly two years living on a bus and touring behind that record, you know. Like I would say, even Ringo got to sing on Beatles records. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's like that, that involvement is what we do it for. That's the forever shit. You know, that's what will last. You know, that's what will exist on album, CD, you know, file, whatever it is. You know, and uh, we, we never really got that as a band. And for me, you know, like bring it together. We're, we're going to go into the studio and cut live because we've been playing together it's nonstop. You know, we'd go out for three months, come back for a few days, go back out. It was, I don't know the exact numbers. I have, I was going through some stuff. I actually came across the, uh, our tour itineraries. And it's kind of neat to look at them. It's like a month of, you know, load in at the cowboy zone, you know, and, you know, and just sort of another thing like, Oh yeah, I remember that gig, you know? And yeah. The, uh, yeah. The cow palace in San Antonio. And, um, yeah, so it was it was an amazing experience. I would really love to have really been in a band situation. I know this is going to sound weird. I have zero sour grapes. I, I want to make that clear. I have no, like, they should have let me do more, you know. I wanted right. to sing. I, because it was their thing. I, I never expected to be on that. But um, I would like to have seen what would have happened. You know, to grab that energy that has been playing in front of millions of people like all over the world, come in and let's play, you know, and so I think because that's why for me, like Amore is the best Hooters record, like the first one, the, the independent one. one. Yeah, because it tops, man. It just jumps out and it's just what the band was doing. It wasn't overthinking. It's, you know, they did it really quickly, cut live. And I just think that's that essence would have been really nice to see what would happen. And plus, you know, like. I don't suck. You know, I write some yeah. good songs. I'm a 100%. pretty good singer, you know? And so like, what would happen if we really do this? You know, like 
like what would the the further meld be and how cool might it be but you know didn't happen so that's life yeah uh, but you know you you absolutely did uh contribute too um in that period too right like uh carla with a k uh yeah you know that, you that know. was all those are bus jams carla that ha- that came around the same time as our arrangement of lucy in the sky did we were just in the literally in the back of the bus on some you know nine hour drive and we have instruments in the back lounge and just knocking stuff around and um yeah, I would would have loved much more of that. You know, yeah, because I think like that's when when we came up with Lucy, that was one of the the spine tingler moments of my time in the band. You know, beyond the fact that it went on, I got to sing it at Red Rocks and at Madison Square Garden, and you know that part of it amazing in and of itself. But when we first like jumped over the chorus, went back to the verses, and the tension of it and the coolness of the mandolins taking the parts, it was like. We were sort of in the back of the lounge going, whoa, that's intense. Yeah. And we did it live like five days later, you know. And so it was this like, you know, you would ask about the, how shit was rolling. It was like, you know, I feel a little bit lucky that there was a little bit of this. You know, we were kicking ass in high schools, you know, yeah. and doing really well. Then it got to be a little bigger. Then it got to be a little bigger. And, you know, then we're doing six nights at the tower, you know, and that's, you know, that's cool in and of itself. But that. And but that feeling and when the record started hitting, you know, and and you're going out and you're noticing, like when we were opening for Don Henley, that was like our first big tour, you know, about three weeks into it, you say, Oh, and zombies is getting some airplay. And yeah. that was the first single we put out because of boom, 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 you'd hear people like react. They knew. And um so that, you know, that's like a that as a musician and I wish everybody could have gotten to experience it. You know, I know everybody has fans and you have people that react, but there was something about touring is that people would give you their, this is my only time this year. I'm going to get to see this band. So I'm going to give it up now. They're not going to be at 23 East next week. And at the chestnut cabaret the week after that, you know, it's those, thank God for those fans. I mean, there's people who came and saw us so much, you know, and, and they still come out. I mean, there's this girl, Lisa Di Stefano, who is like one of the biggest music supporters I've ever seen. She goes out to Seattle to see Pearl Jam and Eddie Vedder, and her whole life is just about it. But she exudes her her, her mirror, you know, like you know she's really feeling it. Yeah. And so it it it's really it's a blessing, you know, that people gave us so much and. You know, I'm I'm happy to be a part of a lot of people's childhoods, I mean, and teen adults. You know, a lot of people that and we dance was kind of a pivotal, you know, pivotal song. You know, it was like my prom song or whatever. You know, yeah. it's like a lot of people. And, and I remember hearing that song for the first time, and I was like, "What is this?" You know, because at that point, when when we they went off to do Nervous Night, we were a ska reggae band. It was like, you know, it's like all about moving the crowd in the clubs. Yeah. So when I heard "And We Dance," was like, that's a really cool song, but I don't know How who that band is. Right. How does it, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But then it turns out, you know, it becomes like sort of one of the iconic things—the big, the mandolin beginning. You know, it's like, it's really good stuff. You know, it's it's really funny you mentioned uh, the ska beginning because uh, I was reading. Um, 
I forget the guy who wrote the book, but there's this uh, this book about U.S. Uh, uh, Scott, the U.S. ska movement, uh, right. and it's like an oral history, and I'm reading, and da 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 da, and I'm like in chapter four, and it's about the Hooters, and I was like, wait, what the fuck? Because I had, <laughs> I had no idea, right? Like I was just like, what the hell? Like it yeah. was like an awakening, and I think yeah. that just came out like a year or two ago. I was really? trying to get that author on the show too, but um, um, but yeah, like it, it's incredible, kind of the 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 change and growth of the band and you know even even from uh nervous night into um into the the next album where you know you're you're, you're contributing a little not as much as you'd like but yeah. you know like that growth um you know the 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 songwriting growth from like you know and we dance which is a stellar song but like satellite you know like it's just you can you can kind of see kind of what you're speaking to like where it was going and i you know uh i can also see where you're saying where they wouldn't want to give up kind of that you know what they their thing what their I vision is right i get that i i honestly you know i recognize that and knew it was not going to change you know if if we've come this far and gone over as many hurdles we've had and there hasn't been a change of bring andy to the studio and we're just kind of the two of us or bring the whole band in or you know it's those two guys and the producer um were just it was about you know davy the drummer has always been sort of the tripod of the hooters you know yeah. it's like it's been the three of them pretty much from the beginning and then uh, John Lilly's been there a long time, but John was, you know, didn't have a whole lot of input either and not sure how much guitar he played on records. Never really talked about it. Um, so yeah, it's, but I remember going to seeing the Hooters. That's what I loved about them. And that music with Davey drumming is his drumming with ska and reggae stuff was Stuart Copeland unique. You know, like and nobody else was doing it and he was super energized and, you know, like, super tight and super pushing it. So I had just giant respect for him and not that the, the America, I call it Americano Hooters kind of went a little Americano, yeah, like you know, and, um, and the straightforward beats and just, I felt like his playing got squinched a little bit, you know, it's like it, he still was playing super hard in the pocket, but the stuff that sort of made him uniquely him got taken away a little bit. Um, pun intended there in the pocket or uh, <laughs> well that was cool the first time I did that honestly that was like that was a really cool moment when I came out and he and I played together for the first time there were, there were some Hooters fans there that were really excited and it, and it just felt really good it was like an old pair of shoes man we just locked yeah. back in and, uh, I just watched a, a video clip on YouTube and like y you can see the joy in your face kind of yeah. just when you guys lock back in yeah. Well, Neil, and I miss playing bass. I mean, playing bass in the studio room without bass is you got to have the big speaker behind your butt, moving some air, you know, and, and just being able to feel that, that just that alone, getting to do the beginning of all you zombies in so many places, just being able to go and just hear it going out and feel it. Feel it. Out. Yeah. Yeah. You know, because when you're on big stages, I mean, I had my little pocket where I could hear my because I used like a really small speaker back then. It was called a Roland Supercube. It was just one 12 inch speaker, but it sounded really good. But it was only like a three foot circle that where you could really, really hear. And then when you start walking around with a wireless thing, you're walking across the stage. You lose. I can't it. hear my signal anymore. But I know 
if I hit something wrong, the whole room would suddenly sound weird. You know, like the frequency would be like, whoa, what was that? But um, yeah, it was, that's one thing I, I always tell people about. The technical aspects of performing in places like that are really daunting. There's sure. a lot of stuff going on and, and, you know, a lot of sound issues and a lot of trust issues. You don't, especially when you're opening, you know, we would get zero sound check, you know, right. be thrust on stage and hope, you know, have the monitors, you have no idea where you're going to be able to hear, you know? So, you know, I watch the Beatles and see them play without monitors and I feel a lot more lucky, but I don't yeah. know how those guys sang in tune. Honestly, <laughs> I have From no idea. Like Between 10- the girls screaming. 10,000 hours of doing it in the cavern, you know? Like. Yes, yeah, yeah. But even in the cavern, if enough people were in there, it's like hearing yourself must have been really difficult. No matter how not loud the amps were, it's still going to be louder than your voices. Yeah. Um, speaking of the Beatles, what's that moment like uh, doing Top of the Pops and then, hey, Paul McCartney, what's up? Like, well, we how do you... Knew, you know, we, oh, yeah. we knew, yeah, we knew he was going to be on. So we were kind of amping up. And so it wasn't like, a jaw dropping thing. And the best part about it, honestly, was he was on the show. We were on the show. You all had to be there for rehearsals and technical stuff. So he was just hanging around, you know, and so it didn't have to be like, <laughs> you know, yeah, tried to you all your shit on him in like yeah. 30 seconds, you know, and I ended up having, you know, kind of a, a neat, quiet little talk with him about, you know, getting busted in Japan and, um, you know, and how, you know, how, what it's like to be globally embarrassed. You know, sure. Right? And he was, he could not, he and Linda could literally not have been any nicer. And That's amazing. I got a, I uh, got a couple things signed. I didn't want to be a bother, but my friend Eddie is like a huge fan. So I got him something. Or yeah. my brother, Eddie, I should say. And awesome. uh, so I got, so it was amazing, you know, and, and then getting to see it just to be there and no, I don't know. I was having a big, I was having a big time, you know, I we were in London, so. yeah. we've been all over Europe. I got to play the Marquee Club the night before, which is a, a place where The Who and Led Zeppelin used to play. And it was just one of those nights where I knew my bass sounded like God. When, yeah. I, when I stepped to the edge of the stage, it's like I can hear what it sounds like in the audience. And I literally could not wish for a better bass sound. <laughs> That's so yeah. incredible. Did you get to tell Paul about um, your mom's obsession with Taste of Honey? Or uh... <laughs> I never, never didn't get that deep, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, would have been nice. I'm sure he would have been tickled by it because, you know, he, uh, she also like Michelle. I mean, the, my mom, you know, was older. I mean, obviously I think about it now, she wasn't really all that old, you know, it'd be right. like, it would be like me being into 21 pilots, you know, like there's new music and I like it. It's different than what I listen to, but you know, I can hear the goodness in this. Yeah. And I'm sure she felt the same way. You know, even though there were a lot of people, somebody posted recently about, that had a review of the Beatles on Ed Sullivan. And the guy was like, Ed Sullivan's wasting his time with this noisy crap. <laughs> and it's like, yeah, this didn't age well. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I wonder if that guy ever changed his tune, like, you know, five, 10 years later. He seemed like one of those guys who would dig his heels in. That's, yeah. that's how, that's how blind it seemed to be. <laughs> so, so you end up leaving the Hooters and then you start working on some solo stuff. And, you know, you, you sent me a copy of spiritual uh, preschool. And uh-huh. um, I, I told you it, it lived. It actually, today was the first day I took it out of my car, um, <laughs> to be honest, uh, to bring it in the house to do some of my more of my research. But um, just a phenomenal stuff, uh, uh, album. 
what was kind of the process of putting that together? Like, was that stuff that you had like um, uh, uh, accumulated over the years since you weren't able to have that output or, um, you know, I've always had some sort of recording set up forever since the task cam four tracks with the cassette tapes. And then it went to like this uh, Akai 12 track that used kind of VHS tapes. And I thought, you know, being able to layer stuff and that was just, I just could spend hours doing that, you know, just like fitting stuff together. So I always had a way to record. So I had a lot of songs and some made it to demo, some made it onto the record. A couple were stuff that I'd had for, had around for a while. Like um, Carry Me With You was just actually a song I played for Eric. Like on, oh, yeah? on, on the tour bus one night. And he was like, man, I read really good, really good. And uh, so it's a little combination of that. And it was just because it was, I wanted to do it because I wanted to. You know, it's like yeah. just as a, a, you know, a record of time and record of sure. what I was doing. And and it was kind of piecemeal. It would do some here, some there. And then I met the uh, guy who ended up producing, co-producing with me and, he had a good setup in the studio, and so it became a little more like, okay, we know what the, the setting is now, and we're able to invite people in, like the drummer Ronnie Crawford, who did just a phenomenal job. Um, yeah, but in the meantime, after I left the Hooters, I was in this band called the Rhythm Cats, which was basically like in the pocket back then. It was me and Ken Queter and Becca Eaton from a band called the Daves um, and Richard Bush. So that there was like four lead singers and the same rhythm section. Ronnie Crawford on drums, Gary Lee on bass, Alan, um, Alan on guitar. They called him Iceman. Um, you know, and we played all over the place, you know, and we would take turns, like who would go first. And we each did a, a set of our own stuff. And then we got together and we did side two of Abbey Road as an encore like the whole thing with all of those was like really orchestrated because we had nine singers and, and it was really beautiful. I'm wow. really proud of it. Yeah, that was good. I don't know any, if there's any recordings of it. I was but just going to say, yeah. Are there, you know, and I got to uh, sing Golden Slumbers, which has always been one of my favorites. And, and there's just so many good McCartney vocals on that, on that side. I, I just um, made a comment about this the other day, but I don't know a better side of an album than that. Like it's, it's like, it's, it's perfect. It's just perfect. It really is. I, Except uh, for her majesty. I'm a little off about it. Like, like, Oh, you should have just went out. Like, but it's like, it. at least I it's can't. only 12 seconds long. You That's know what right. I mean? It's like, <laughs> just when you're going like, I'm not sure. Oh, it's over. Yeah. 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 Um, no, I like to poop on good things. You know, I have to, <laughs> I have to find the one little flaw just to harp on that. So yeah, it was a combination of old stuff and, um, you know, like things, whatever still resonating with me, like the song I Won't Fight was written around this, the beginning of the Gulf War. And I just, it was George Bush standing in a, a sand trap, you know, hitting a golf shot and talking about the brave guys over in Iraq. And I just thought like, there's something really, I don't know. I don't even know what the word is. It's like cold to be living your normal life after sending guys off. So I started thinking like, what if, your dad had been killed in Vietnam and suddenly there's just like national fervor again to go and fight somebody. And what kind of conflict would that create for, even if you were patriotic, even if you maybe want to serve, it would be, it'd be really torn. 
And yeah. the second part of it was watching a press conference after the, the war had begun and those first weird nights where the Iraqis are just throwing up every anti-aircraft thing they have. And meanwhile, we have stealth fighters like a mile high that they can't even see or sense on radar dropping bombs with cameras on them. You know, and I just remember watching a press conference and they were watching the film of a bomb hitting its target and then kind of giggling. And I was like, hey, dude, war is ugly and stuff. And the fact that we're kind of like having a laugh about it, that, you know, however many dozens of people just died, you know, that, that's not a good thing. So yeah. instead of war not being a good thing, I just changed it to guns. And so guns are not a good thing for our world. I mean, I, like uh, listening to it now um, during this uh, Ukraine invasion, like it, it it's it sucks that it's an idea that still resonates how many years later, right? Like it it just and uh, um, it's such it's such a beautiful heavy song and 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 carries you know such incredible weight. Um, were you always a, a lyricist? Uh, yeah, those you know, times? I was a poetry writer. Yeah. You know, um, but it was, poetry is like a weird thing. It, it never feels like a palpable, like actual way to do anything, you know, like unless you're self-publishing, right? So I, it was more just, I don't know. I, I don't know if everybody goes through it, but just trying to materialize internal emotions, mm-hmm. you know, whether you do it through art or through sculpting or running. I mean, it doesn't have to be, an art, but it has to be something that, that takes this and puts it out there as opposed to it just recycling and sort of burning inside. Um, so for me, poetry began that. And then to be able to tie the two together um, just felt good, you know? And, yeah. Um, yeah. You know, and I was, I always had a little weird attitude about it. Like when I first went to college and would play, I couldn't play in front of people. It was just like, a, just a, I don't know, but people would sit outside my dorm room. I'd like put my guitar down and step outside. There'd be like three people getting stoned in the hallway <laughs> and checking it out. So then, you know, I just got a little braver and got a, a couple gigs and opened up for people at the University of Delaware. I opened up for famous dudes, brothers, Livingston Taylor and uh, Tom Chapin. <laughs> <laughs> That's cool. <laughs> Um, what was, so, so when that, when that came out, did you, did you tour on that at all or just, um, yeah, play know, playing, I played out a bunch, um, yeah. but it, I don't know how to explain it. It was like to, to get a full functioning band again, which I did after leaving the Hooters, you know, I kind of like got a full band, put everybody on paycheck, you know, so that I had had their full time and it, you know, it was the age of grunge. And, yeah. you know, and that's what's the stuff that was really hitting. And I have always kind of been reaching to music to soothe as opposed to agitate. So it seemed like the kind of the opposite vibe. No, that's no, you know, that, that feels like an excuse because people still were making soft records and, and getting heard. And so I don't know. I just felt like a round peg in a square hole at that time. So the idea of starting up another band thing kind of didn't appeal to me, but the Rhythm Cats gave me a chance to play out and play my songs and, and I would do some solo acoustic things. Um, I don't know, but it's weird. You know, it's weird ever after kind of 
being there, you know, whatever that means yeah. like being in front of 18,000 people and stuff. So it felt kind of sort of falling off a cliff, you know, in terms of playing to 40 people at a bar that really don't know you and have no interest in hearing your original music, you know? Um, but we all face that, you know, it's like, it, nobody guarantees you a quiet audience just sitting there except in the living room, which is really nice. And why originally I wanted to play there because it used to be just be for 40 seats in a really small place. It's like 10 rows of 40, you know, it's like people were right there and small little stage. So that's why I want to do it. But then pandemic came and that room disappeared. Yeah. And Laura, man, decided to step it up. And she found this place where she could get it on weekends and, um, it's a much bigger space, but it's really cool. She's got couches and super comfortable, you know, chairs. And so people just, it's like you're literally playing in somebody's living room. And I don't know if it's going to change now that, because there was a little bit COVID set up, you know, there'd be like a couch here and a couch over here. They were trying to keep it so people weren't on top of each other. Um, but yeah, so that's that's why I did the living room and why I'm doing this one. It's just because it's nice to have people listen. There's something beautiful about the quiet. Yeah. You know, and that's, you know, and that's what I love about other artists. You know, there somebody I listen to a lot now is Phoebe Bridgers because she just embraces the silence so that whatever she does feel, fill it with is just beautiful. I mean, I could listen to her sing the phone book, you know, there's just her phrasing and her breathiness. And so, yeah. And another a weird one, the, maybe the strangest thing of the pandemic, loving two Taylor Swift records. Hey man, like you can't you can't deny the, her songwriting ability. Like, those, yeah, especially those two lo-fi albums that she put out. Like they were yeah. just like it really kind of stripped away all of the kind of bullshit around her and was just like, hey, I'm also really good, you know. Like, right, I'm an adult and I have something to say, and it doesn't have to be. I mean, I always looked at her almost as much as product as an mm -hmm. artist because all you know, but she was 17. And the fact that she can write, shake it up, shake it up, you know, these great pop songs that are going to make young girls go crazy. And it, there's no denying that she did it extremely, extremely well. But I just remember hearing um, a cowboy like me for the first time. And I was like, who is this? You know, like, this is a beautiful, well-written song, but I don't know who it is. And finding out it was her and then, you know, buying, I, I bought the second one first. Okay. Uh, uh, evermore i guess yep um and it was interesting going back and listening to folklore afterward and you realize that there's musical themes that run throughout the record you know like some and i remember hearing seeing an interview which is like we finished that one and it just didn't feel like it was done you know like i felt there was like more exploring within that framework and so some of the songs are kind of along with similar continuations of previous album and so anyway, i love the quiet and i love I'm doing a course right now on, on mindfulness and meditation on a YouTube masterclass. It's this guy, John Kabat-Zinn. And it's, you know, I've always sort of known this because like once I had, was, had ego satisfaction and like money satisfaction, like being where you think, look, I'm going to be happy when I get there. And then you get there and it's just other things bubble up. And, yeah. you know, and if you're not straight within yourself and with your, within your own thing, nothing, no amount of, smoke being blown up your ass is going to make you feel okay. And so I've always been kind of exploring, read this thing called A Course in Miracles, which is all about 
the present moment being the only thing that counts. Everything else is simply in our brains, either in a, a future fear or, or past regret. And all, all, all your brain that you're using on those two things is blocking it from fu- truly functioning in the present moment. So that's what I love, uh, the being in the here and now and letting that expanse. And, like, and, and doing this course has been really good because it just reminds me that you can make anything into a meditation. Like I'm just doing a labor job right now. I'm working at this place called Renew Decor building. We build these huge mirrors with big wood frames. And, and so I'm like working, you know, but it, I just try to remind myself, breathe, you know, no matter what you're doing. For me, like the signal, John, John Zinn calls it dropping in at any moment, no matter what's going on around you, you can become a calm in the center of the storm. And so many situations now and I feel myself getting like, you know, I want to control it. It's just a better way to be, you know, and it makes me more patient and understanding and empathetic. And, you know, I guess that's, that's kind of all we can do as humans, you know, and another, another thing John came up with that I just started writing a song about, he said, ask this, ask this, ask yourself this question. What is my way? Like, what is my way? How am I going to go through this life? How am I going to present myself? And if you find yourself feeling weird, just go, what is my way? And my way is to try to come out of this with a peaceful solution and go about it with as low anxiety and agitation as possible. That's my way. Because there's plenty, you know, so many humans are still functioning on a, a, a need, a grabbing, and, a, you know, it's like a possessive and, and um, maybe I'm lucky enough to have experienced a lot of that so that I know that it's not about that. I know yeah. it's not about the car you drive. I know it's not about the house you live in. It's you choosing what you have, you know, and owning it and being grateful for it. And so that's, that's my way. That's what I'm figuring out. It's like, you know, I'm, I'm a fuck up. I'm lazy. I'm, you, you know, you know, I'm like not great about being in touch. Um, that's just cause I'm, Trying to be, you know, yeah. I don't mean that as a cop out. It's just like, kind of like sometimes I s- slide out and that's what I need to do. Yeah. I mean, that's, you know, one of the things, um, not just as a um, kind of uh, product of the pandemic, but uh, just kind of where I've been in life has uh, kind of been the same thing, which is trying to figure out what like kind of you know what what i who who i am i guess is really, like who i am at the my same core question. Not, you know like not not um not even who i want to be but just who in the center of my being i am like and and not putting on airs and not who i'm trying to be for someone else and i can pretty much pinpoint every single struggle that i've ever gone through as being a time when i've strayed from that center Right. And, um, and, and, and it's like right now where I'm at, it's like the problem of recognizing that, but also acting on it, you know, like, cause right. it's very easy to recognize, but right. it's so hard to kind of bring it back in. Um, yeah. The course of miracles says to know and not to do is not yet to know. 
that's 100%. That's it. I mean, that's it. And that's kind of, that's where I'm at. It's like, it's like, uh, touching the ceiling of enlightenment, but not kind of, you know, <laughs> making it to the next floor. You know what I mean? Like, but also being trying to be okay with that, you know, that, yeah. Um, one of my favorite lyrics from my album is, uh, ice is water. It says, if sometimes you don't feel right, just know you're not alone. All your trials are simply your journey home. And the sooner you can just accept that, you know, like there's going to be trouble and that trouble is here for a reason, you know, and I, if I can look at it as a lesson instead of a roadblock, it makes it a lot more tolerable, you know, and I'm, I am so much more forgiving and empathetic about other people than I am for myself. You know, that's like the inner self-critic is still really strong. It's the inner anger can up come up really quickly, but it's ne never about, I know that my life is nobody else's fault. You know, like nobody right. else has done anything or trapped me or, or made me do anything. It's, it's all been up to me. And, and I can't, I, that's what I'm working on is like, okay, be here. You know, you don't have to be anything except being able to be present and to be, you know, the, I, I really feel when you're talking to people, when you're having a conversation with somebody and they're there and they look you in the eye and you know, you're making eye contact, like that's real. You know, that's yeah. like, that's the shit because now we're really together and you're going to, um, what I'm going to share with you is truth. And it'd be nice if you do the same because that's all we can do. And you know, I met so many people, rich and famous people that didn't have that. They're always like, you know, like looking for somebody bigger than them that they can latch onto, or I don't even know what, but for me, that's the, that's the thing. It's like, can you be present with me right now and share who you are? That's, that's all we can, you know, that's why I'm a hugger, you know? Yeah. And one of the hardest things about the pandemic was like not being able to hug people, you know, and you know, like, I'm, I love big hugs and long, I will never be the first one to release, you know? <laughs> yeah. That's <laughs> uh, so cool. That's so cool. Um, so uh, w w I do this little thing called the jauntlet where there's all these different questions. But before we get into that, I really okay. have to I really we really have to connect on the other thing that we share besides music, which is a great love of disc golf. So I need to know, like, wh when did you start playing disc golf? Uh, 96. Okay. A friend of mine played at Jordan Creek up in Allentown. And took me with him one day. I mean, I had played at Brandywine. We mm -hmm. used to go to Brandywine just to, when we played with lids, you can imagine how many lid throws it takes to get around Brandywine. <laughs> around Brand, yeah, wow. Yeah, but we would do it and jog. You know, we would just like, it would be kind of a workout. You know, you throw it and run the whatever 150 feet that you can throw a lid and just, you know, play nine and be exhausted. Um, but, you know, the first time throwing a, uh, a golf plastic was like, Oh shit. The stability is like, it's just diving to the left. Um, so yeah, that got me. And then I heard from a musician friend that there was a doubles event at Sedgley on Thursdays. That it was a good place to learn because you get paired with a good player. If you're a beginner, you get paired with somebody really good as a double stick partner. And so I went and did that. And, and that was the second year the tags were running that the official tags league. And so that was the next thing I started doing. And, you know, and pretty instant, I think I guess I'd played about six months and my parents got together with my friend, Andrew, who turned me on to it and they bought me a basket for Christmas. And that was, that's like, that period of time feels like Zen to me. 
because yeah. I remember practicing putting and feeling, you know, the smoothness and the breathing and the using your whole body. And I just remember loving that feeling, you know, like, uh, and would p- practice all the time and got pretty good, pretty fast, you know, and it was three years later, won my first tag championship at Sedgley and, um, and, you know, I'm, I wasn't a great golfer, you know, in terms of like knowing what great golf looks like now, but I was solid and tough to beat at Sedgley. And if things were too long, you know, I just wish I'd started before I was 37. You know, it's a young man's sport. I, you know, there's a young kid at Sedgley right now named Harry Chase and he's 20 and you watch him throw and just like, I wish I'd been able to play at that age. It's just the, the physicality of it. But either way, the community, the Zen aspect of it's you and your discs against that. And nobody yeah. else, nobody else can be blamed and nobody else can take credit, you know, and, and when you make a good throw, the hum, I mean, I, I don't even, it's like, you didn't feel anything, you know, it's like just what's the, that book called the flow, you know? Yeah. Like, just, yeah. It just feels like flow. You know, yeah, and, uh, when 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 you when you get that perfect release and and you know before it even leaves your hand, you're yeah. just like, oh, that's it, that is yeah. it. <laughs> Did you see the Chris Dickerson video? No, he, he was playing a casual round with uh, Zach. Uh, was a big bearded guy, uh, Zach uh, Melton. Yeah, so they're playing a casual round together and they're talking trash. Zach Melton steps up and throws it to about five feet of something after claiming he was going to ace it. Then. Chris Dickerson steps up, throws it, and and fairly early in the flight, it was starting to go through. He turned around and just started thanking his sponsors, and I like it, and it goes in. Oh Zach no Mullen, way! No. <laughs> anyway, oh, that's great. You know, but one of the great loves of my life, and truly a passion. I mean, like, you know, I worked at trying to become a good player because just for whatever reason, it just really resonated with me. I love being out in the woods. I loved having a reason to be outside during the winter. You know, I'd sort of stop skiing and that didn't really have any interest in that. But, you know, so to, a reason to be outside, a reason to have good gear, reason to have good shoes, you know, and playing all year round was a blast. You know, like we played in Hurricane Floyd. Wow. Yeah. Me and three other guys had to go around roadblocks all over Fairmount Park to get to Sedgley, but we got there. And while it was probably the dumbest thing we've ever done, I, yeah, not so it was dangerous out there. I mean, <laughs> yeah. there was. You know, you'd come around the corner and there'd be a branch doing into the ground, you know, that came down at about 300 miles an hour. But it was so amazing watching Sedgley deal with the water, you know, like how much water is being created. <laughs> and the, my favorite part, we were playing this guy, Professor Rick, and he started off in a poncho, a shirt underneath and blue jeans. And you know how jeans, like even if you're covered, they'll get wet from the bottom up and then it's the wetness will... Just so eventually take it over, yeah. he took off his jeans and didn't have an underwear on. So he's playing in a poncho and he's kind of a little portly guy. And every time he would throw the poncho and just go, Oh no. And, fly up. <laughs> and eventually he's like, well, fuck the poncho. And he just played naked. He played four naked holes. It's like, <laughs> Oh my God. Oh, God. Yeah, it's, it's, was- it's one of the greatest places on earth. Sedgley woods is just, uh, and the people, like you said, are just so amazing. And it's just such an, ecle- like disc golf just gathers such an eclectic group of people. Couldn't and- be anymore. We have literally, rocket scientist down to homeless person yeah barry noakes is a rocket scientist and 
you know, I, uh, I'm actually, we're actually going through some sadness at Central right now. We're losing a couple holes on the Outback and yeah, like I, I can't believe that like historically there wasn't something to be able to protect those. Like that's just yeah, 40 a- plus years of being good stewards of the area. didn't really buy us much when the city decided to come down. Such a bummer. That is such yeah. a bummer. Well, we'll make do, you know, we, we lived without the, out, all those outback holes before, so we'll figure something out and make the best of it. And since it's all about community, you know, my friend, Eric Sestaro calls Sesley a shitty little course. Because <laughs> he's over at Stafford Woods, right? You know, so it's like you know the mecca over there. Yeah, living the dream over the there. Holes. Yeah. Um, so I'll, I, you know, New Year's Day is one of my favorite days of the year, and one of the two days of the year that I get drunk. I don't really drink, but I get lit up on New Year's Day and lit up on my birthday. It's beautiful at Sedgley on Jägermeister. Uh, yeah, of course, of course. Right? Yeah. That's amazing. Did you um did did you play when you were living in LA or did you take time you know, off? I got out to Oak Grove a few times. Yeah. And uh, a couple went down to La Mirada and something else in uh, I had a friend in San Diego. But it was um Oak Grove. I lived almost in Santa Monica. So Oak Grove was a whole, you know, I tried not to be in my car either between six in the morning and 10 or three and seven, you know, it's like those times the roads are just fucked. You know, there's like, you know, as big as, as wonderful as the highways are at three in the morning, when you're trying to get someplace, you you got six lanes to yourself. You feel like a slot car, you know, you just go (laughs) wherever you want and get any place, you know, in 30 minutes. Um, So I didn't play a lot, but I, because I was working in TV, I would have gigs for a while and then I would come home. And and be able to go to Sedgley and was able to kind of like I think I came in top twenty in tags one of the years where I was living out there. Just I came home and got the one tag. So it just you know I was really good then I and mean, I was consistent. And one yeah. of the proudest things I when I got back from L.A. My dad had a stroke and I was like I I can't be in L.A. for this you know I can't be that far away. So I came home and started taking care of him. And at first it wasn't like a full time dig. Eventually I was his main caregiver and was really landlocked locked on the house and just kind of helping him shut it down. But in, uh, was it 2009? I won tags again. I was 50 years old and took down tags and played a lot of really good golf. I played 89 rounds, got 88 gold tags. And at that point, gold tags were only one through 20. So you had to finish up with top five or six, you know, and I just felt, I don't know. Anyway, then I got Lyme disease, my right shoulder disappeared so now i just sort of retrain myself just to literally enjoy being out there you know and to enjoy a good shot because i went through this period where it was like you know turning into a little bit of the angry golfer you know just because because my literally my arm could not respond to my brain i still have a little bit of nerve damage and numbness up in the air so it just was like uh, but now sort of you know trying to ease into the night just like life basically you know all your shit stops working as well and you know and i'm 63 now and you know i'm not going to be able to throw as far as i ever could and never will again but i can still enjoy it and still be a really good card mate and you know be supportive and energetic as you can be and you know and be a good ambassador you know and and not be angry and that's you know another good time to practice mindfulness it's like this is a game i'm out here for the enjoyment 
I'm out here for the sunshine and the camaraderie, and that's a win. I can get through a full round where I just had a really good time with people. And, uh, you know, I still allow myself a second to make a Miss Ann curse or something, you know, <laughs> something inappropriate. But, uh, you know, then you just let it go and, and move on to the next shot. So, yeah. Yeah. It's a- it's a, the the, uh, the Lyme disease in the arm. Does that affect playing at all? Um, um, you know, it was weird. What I lost complete use of my right arm for eight months. I couldn't raise it over my I, two nerves died up in here, and the the muscles then disappeared, which is really odd because the whole area got concave, like between my neck and where your scapula is, was just <laughs> so. Look, you know, like this part of me was gone pretty much. But yeah. luckily, you know, the nerve grows back. I'm not sure how it happens, but um, so, you know, no. So, but vocally it was a little weird too. You know, it attacked a little bit of my throat and uh, a little bit in my stomach. Really? I still have a lot of numbness across here. Like that was the worst part about it. First of all, I didn't sleep for 30 days. Literally did not sleep. Did not have more than blink my eyes shut because just uncomfortable. And for whatever reason, just felt jacked you know, um, and also didn't go to the bathroom. I mean, I peed, but I didn't poop for like a month. And wow. yeah, it was it, honestly, dude, it was the heaviest time in my life. Cause I thought literally I was dying. They were talking to me. They didn't know right away. They were saying shit like MS, you know, leukemia. They weren't really sure what was going on. Like all the weird stuff that was happening. Um, so anyway, my body was pretty fucked up. I remember trying to carry, a a tray of rolls to Thanksgiving dinner and just from the car to the house. And when I opened the door to my parents' kitchen, I walked in, people looked at me like, you know, they were seeing a ghost. So I was just exhausted. I couldn't wow. even stand at the, I couldn't even stand at the sink to do dishes, the act of leaning forward. And, you know, anyway, I feel super lucky to have come back as far as I did, but it was a little bit weird too. I kind of, a little bit had to relearn how to sing. And in some ways, I think I've discovered some things that are making me a better singer, you know, yeah. that instead of just settling on screaming, you know, like trying to, trying to fill it and backfill it and sing from the diaphragm. And um, yeah, so just doing the best you can for as long as I can. You know? That's incredible. Well, I'm, I'm yeah. definitely glad that there's a repair there. Like that's, that's super. Scary. Yeah. You know, cause uh, you know, somebody sent me a, a really nice, uh, email after the last show I did the living room, you know, and, and she was just really sort of comparing me to other artists that she liked and telling me that's why she liked me. And that was really satisfying, you know, and that, you know, it's not a gigantic number of people, but there's some people that have been really touched by the music and, you know, and I've gotten to hear carry me with you in a church at somebody's funeral. My uh, girlfriend's mother, you know, they played the song in the church. Like wow. as, yeah, it's like the last thing. So that, you know, and I figure I've written a few, written my own funeral music already. So oh. you got that going for me, which is nice. <laughs> oh, geez. Well, we won't have to play that for a very long time, hopefully. So I hope so. I hope so, too. All right. At this time, um, I'm going to put you through the jauntlet. These are uh, two batches of 10 questions. Uh, the first okay. just kind of verses. It's called the One Hit Wonders. Um, you just pick whoever your favorite is. Uh, number okay. one. Billy Joel or Elton John? Who do you take? Billy Joel. Billy Joel. Billy Joel. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, do we want to back it up, or you just want? The yeah. Question? No. Go ahead. Yeah, you can absolutely back it up. Um, 
I like his songs better. He played with such incredible fire and there was no bullshit, you know, not that Elton John was bullshit, but the duck outfits and it's that kind of stuff and crocodile rock, you know, it, it was, it was a little more campy and, and showy. And I just liked that Billy Joe was smoking a cigarette and just beating the shit out and telling amazing songs, stories, you know, just that part of it. Yeah. Definitely. Definitely. Uh, number two, Debbie Harry or Joan Jett? Joan. <laughs> This is the can I say Chrissy Hine? Chrissy yes, Hine. I like that. <laughs> uh, Chrissy like Hine, then. Because was... to me, she sort of encompasses both of them. Yeah. You know, Joan Jett, you know, a couple songs. But beyond that, you know, I, I, don't, was, I can't say I ever listened to a Black Hearts record or really checked her out a whole lot. And Deborah Harry, you know, Blondie had some cool stuff. But I, Chrissy Hine was the real legit, you know, and sing, unique singer, unique songwriter, kick-ass band. You know, and so I was a pretenders guy. Definitely. I love it. Uh, number three, uh, this one I'm probably going to end up changing at some point because uh, the, these are all new ones um, uh, that uh, I, I took out. Like uh, I used to have Eddie Van Halen or Sammy Hagar and everybody said Eddie, <laughs> or, or, uh, uh, David Lee Roth. I mean, uh, and, and nobody said Sammy Hagar. I think one person did. So I was like, oh, I got to take that out. But this is one of those uh, Aretha Franklin or Tina Turner. Tina just goes, I, Aretha is, is like history channel a little bit for me, okay. you know, like not really having any experience of her as a young woman, but Tina Turner was still young enough in her sort of late seventies, early eighties revival, you know, that, so I f- felt a little more personal connection to that. I mean, obviously Aretha, you know, respect, no pun intended, right. you know, just, but for me, it was always kind of like this thing that happened, but I never was part of it, at least with Tina, you know, it was like I saw her do it, you know, and yeah. I think speaking literally of live, yeah. <laughs> sitting literally underneath the piano, like that was on stage for their rehearsal and having them rehearse like four feet in front of me. And just remember looking around and looking out over the empty arena and just. And my favorite part is that they there might well have been 90,000 people there, whatever's going on in those egos. They were trying to outcock each other right from the beginning, you know, strutting around doing the whole deal. But it was amazing. Yeah. That's so cool. That is so cool. Uh, the next one, Nirvana or Pearl Jam? Pearl Jam. Yeah. 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 I, I kind of guessed that. Um, yeah. You know, uh, Nirvana, again, a couple songs besides, you know, uh, Teen Spirit and a couple other ones, Heart Shaped Box or whatever it is. Um but Pearl Jam's first record, you know, I caught them in the tower and they were like, really? this is, yeah, like this is, I only knew two songs from MTV, but the rest of it, you know, and Eddie Vedder is just one of those cats. He was going to, you know, climb up into the lights and do crazy shit and entertain you that way. But I also loved the bass player and the guitar players are both kick-ass. Um, you know, I'm like, I'm a Dave Grohl guy. I mean, the fact that he came out of Nirvana like one of the most iconic bands of all time and forged for me a better history for himself. You know, like Definitely. to me, the foods are like one of the, one of the great bands, you know, like, and you watch them play at Wembley stadium and watch the, the intensity of the crowd reaction. You can't fake that shit. And it's because he gives it up. 100%, 100%. Yeah. Uh, the next one, Janice Joplin or Stevie Nicks, you know, I was 18 when rumors came out. So 
I looked at Stevie Nicks' picture a lot. <laughs> well, she was pretty cute. Uh, yeah, I, I, I so. can dig it. I can dig it. Um, think I know the answer for this one. Beatles or the Stones? Beatles. Yeah, I thought. You no, know, Stones. <laughs> I I listen to Sticky Fingers a lot. Uh, Midnight Rambler. Uh, get your eyes out. There was there were songs, you know, in Ruby Tuesday. But you know, for me, all you have to do is look. I, all I have to do is look at the songbook that the bands produce now in its entirety and I look back. It's like, there's so many more Beatles songs that I really like. There's a lot of these songs in, that I do, couldn't even sing the melody in the, the Rolling in the Stones, Stones greatest hit. So, yeah. you know, Beatles. Definitely, definitely. Uh, last one of the one-hit wonders, Bohemian Rhapsody or Stairway to Heaven? You know, I'm going to say Bohemian just because it got pummeled to death with... Uh, stairway yeah you know, like every kid playing the riff in guitar stores you know it just it became elevator music way before it was considered for elevator music just because you got bombarded with it yeah bohemian's so weird i mean first of all stairway to heaven's kind of a little bit of a ripoff there's i can't remember the guy's name right now but it's taken like that's yeah that descending note thing came from that other cat song anyway Bohemian, just because obviously Freddie was having an artistic trip, you know, just to imagine that stuff, you know, to even think how oh, this could happen, you know, and and here comes the operatic part, you know, and right, right, they're pulling it and off, then and then it shreds in the end, yeah, like, yeah, and you know, and for being as long, you can't have a hit that's six minutes or whatever, right. you know, um, but you know, plus who hasn't sang that song at the top of their lungs, some portion of it at some point in their life. You know, Definitely. every person who likes music has said, mama mia, mama mia. <laughs> so. I love it. Uh, the next section, the top 10 countdown. Um, these are just favorites and stuff like that. Um, the okay. word John in here can be music. It can be anything you want. It doesn't have to be uh, specifically music. So don't, don't feel uh, beholden. You know, you know, John, it can be anything. So uh, right. <laughs> uh, number one, what was your first John? What was the first thing you were obsessed with as a kid? This might be weird, but the, one of the first things was Elvis Presley in the ghetto. Really? The ghetto. Yeah. I mean, that was the first 45 I ever bought. So there was something about, and that for him, that like his singing was so big and round at that point, at least on that song. So I just remember frequency wise being like, that's really cool. Oh, oh you awesome. know what? I want to addendum slot cars. Oh, that's yeah? the first thing I was obsessed over. Yeah. Cause I had like the briefcase with multiple cars, fresh brushes, you know, fresh tires. And we had a place in Ambler. There was a, a, a slot car place right on Main Street in Ambler that was, you know, a bike ride from our house. So spent a lot of time there, you know, and, and just sort of loved, loved the preparation, loved repainting the car. And, you know, and they had the big track. They had like 14 lanes, color coded, and you'd have amazing races. That's so cool. That is That's an cool. awesome answer. Slot car nerd. I love <laughs> it. Uh, number two, what's your current, John? What are you into right now? Mindfulness. Yeah. You know, it's, that's probably the, one of the things I think about the most during the day, you know, because no matter what else is going on, you can always make it a little better by taking a breath and coming fully into the moment, dropping in, as he says. I love it. Uh, number three, what was the first concert you went to? Uh, Johnny Winter. Really? 
my first was an albino experience. Yeah. And I don't even <laughs> remember why, you know, it's, um, I think just cause I got invited, but I yeah. remember, but I, this, here's a weird thing. I remember having a really succinct daydream that I was going to be playing bass in the spectrum at one point. Wow. Yeah. Like, yeah. It's an amazing, if you will it like that yeah. is, that is really, although incredible. never really consciously. That's the funny part. It wasn't like I, left that night and picked up a bass and started, you know, st- still jock and still, you know, involved with that, all that. And um, so it, was, it wasn't until years later, like actually when we were playing the spectrum, kind of remember like looking up to the third deck and remember where I sat for Johnny Winter and like it all sort of came around. Oh my God. That's so incredible. Yeah. That's beautiful. Uh, number four, what was your last concert? What was the last live show you saw? Ah. Wow, it's weird because of the pandemic. I guess uh, in the pocket. I mean, I was part of it, but I'm also watching. Yeah, that so, counts. Oh, it totally yeah. counts. Yeah. Okay. You know, and I love watching Davey play, and there's a lot of good people in there, and I love watching Greg Davis play guitar. So I can fanboy out a little bit before I get up and play with him. Before. You know? Oh, that's so cool. Yeah. That is cool. Uh, number five, what was your favorite concert you've ever been to? I'm going to say two. Okay. I was I was a huge Kansas freak. Like when they when they first came out, their first record, you know, the fact that they became famous for Wayward Son and Dust in the Wind, I'm happy for them because they made a shit ton of money finally. Because they were their third record called Mask is like my one of my favorite records of all time. And to find out later that they were like super in debt up until that point. You know, like the first the three albums that I loved made no money for them. But what the first album was out and we heard they were going to be at Villanova. They played in the cafeteria over at Villanova and I was about 15 feet away and they did the opening song of their second record, having never played it. It wasn't out yet, but they're like, this is a new song we're going to do. It's called song for America. And I just remember being like, what the fuck was that? (laughs) You know, and just literally one of those blown away moments. So that then fast forward to, you uh, two at the tower after oh God. dude, we were standing not up in the chairs. We were standing on the arms of the chairs and I will never forget them doing, I will follow and like turn, I turned towards the audience and literally every person was as tall as they could get screaming. I will follow with their, their fists in the air. And I just, you know, I, their first two albums, I just really, really liked. And I just, I, just last night, I got turned on to a band called inhaler. It's Bono's son. Oh, really? Yeah, it looks a lot like him and sings a lot like him, and they sound like you too, like early U2. It's really actually cool because it's all boy energy, but it's back to the, like, ringing guitars and screamy vocals. And so, I got to check that out. I'm going to check that out. Inhaler. Okay. All right. All right. Number six, who have you never seen live who you wish you would have that can be living or dead? Hendrix. Oh, God. Yeah. You know, I, because I, the only reason I have a quick answer to that is that, you know, you see that once in a while, people will put up a meme, like, who would you see? I would, I would, I wish that Hendrix had lived because I would love to have seen him live through the the pedal age, you know, the guitar technology, looping, all that stuff, whatever the creative thing was in his head, I think he would have taken it to a, an amazing level, you know? Oh, definitely. Just maturity. And, you know, to think about it, like he was a kid. You know, he's 27. I, I was know. thinking about a, 
that's so young, you know? Yeah. It's, uh, yeah. It, it's so and tragic. To, to create the shit he did when he was 24, you know, like the, the songs you got to know him for before he died. That's just young, man. Yeah. And to just change that instrument in such a small period of time, just by, you know, expressing himself like it's, yeah. it's and tone and, and yeah. Uh, that's one of the amazing things about guitar that even after all this time, there's still people you can hear a few notes and you know who it is like Eric Johnson, Mm-hmm. Uh, Mark Knopfler, you know, Brian May, you know, it's like it's tone and vibrato and playing with a coin or whatever you do. But it's it's amazing that you can still make that instrument. So your own. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Uh, number seven, name an unappreciated, John. Name something you wish people paid more attention to. Well, we would, used to say disc golf, you know, <laughs> but now, now I want to tell I want to get out the men in black pen and erase, <laughs> erase it from a lot of people because you can't play it essentially on weekends anymore. Um, but, you know, then you, then you find a new place like for the fort, you know, and you find some place that's still at, in its fledgling stage and watch it. You know, there's nothing I love more than watching a course grow and, wa- and knowing how much love and, and sweat equity has gone into it from the people that love that place. And, and to see it blossom and, and yeah, but my, yeah. my current answer would be uh, what we do in the shadows. Oh, it's, it's incredible, isn't it? <laughs> it's absolutely incredible. It makes me belly laugh, you know, and, and I know a lot of people won't get it, but I don't know. I love, I love that. I, oh, I, it's brilliant. It's yeah. absolutely brilliant. Uh, number eight, what's your favorite album? Hmm. Uh, uh, Tegan and Sarah, so jealous. Oh my God. Did you just see they re recorded it? They did. did. <laughs> but I always love their demo versions. They, yeah. they, they've always put out just like demo versions of all their records. And it's really cool to see what choices they made. I'm sorry, I interrupted. What did we know you start to say? Uh, just that they, 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 so they re recorded it and they sang each other's parts. Like, oh, they did totally, each other's songs. I remember reading that. Yeah, it totally blows my mind. So, spoiler alert for anybody listening to this, I actually reached out to their publicist and I'm trying to get them on this show. So, <laughs> well, I, they, I, I would think they do it. They have a big presence. They, they used to do these things called uh, the, the forest phone where they would just have this like prop phone next to them. And then they would do a speaker phone call with their mother or their friend. And it was just something for them to do in the studio while other stuff was going on, but they're hysterical. Oh, you know, they're, the best. Them, they're really funny. And then, and, and seeing them live and the banter and stuff was just always really funny. But anyway, so jealous, a guy that, I, that used to deliver weed to me in LA used to give me a mix CD every time he would come over. And That's he put awesome business model. <laughs> yeah. He put walking with a ghost on there. And I thought it was Cocteau twins. Have you ever heard Cocteau yeah. twins? Yeah. Like leaving Las Vegas is like one of my favorite records, but I thought it was that or them. So I like checked and I was like, Oh, Tegan and Sarah, what's that about? So I went and got so jealous. And, you know, so it also represents like my initial foray into LA, you know, so I have, an emo- it's one of those things, you know, like you have emotional turmoil and stuff and you have a, a record that you attached to that. Absolutely. It's like a time machine, like a time machine. Yeah. Like, and, and he, and, um, what's the song? How do you know when to let go? Where does the good go? That song live is some of the biggest chills I've ever gotten. So yeah. Yeah. Awesome answer. I love it. 
<laughs> uh, number nine, name an artist whose output you'll consume anything they release, even if you're apologetic for it. <laughs> uh, Crowded House. Yeah. Neil Finn. Yeah. I mean, you know, there's a story. I, I'm not exactly sure it's true, but I, someone asked Paul McCartney, what's it like to be the world's greatest living songwriter? He's like, I don't know. You have to ask Neil Finn. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. So I think, you know, his... I can, he's another cat who somehow make the phone book interesting. Yeah, his, totally. His sense of melodies and yeah. Uh, you know, I think Red Balloon is kind of my tribute to Crowded that's House. Your, that's your, I, yeah. can see, I can definitely see that. Yeah. I can definitely yeah. see that. Yeah. Uh, number 10, the 10th and final of the top 10 countdown. What is your favorite John of all time? Again, doesn't have to be music, can be anything you want it to be. Uh, wow. It's, you know, disc golf. I mean, the, to, to not say that what's something that is occupies every weekend, you know, playing a few times a week. Luckily, we have this new course up here, Fulmore. It's like a private course. Oh, yeah. To join. It's, it winds kind of through a, uh, a small home community. And, and so you just sort of wake here. And there's, there's one field where they have baseball fields and stuff, but mostly it's just kind of short and it's really close. And it's just really nice to just to go over and throw, you know, and last um, we played last Saturday, I got a left-handed hole in one. Oh um, my God. There you go. <laughs> that was my third, you know, during, during when the right arm went, I started playing with my left and now anything I need to go hard left to right, I'll throw it left-handed. That's and feel pretty good about it. A switch hitter. I like it. You know, you know it was really, it was, it was really, you know, you just had to break it down to ergonomics when I first started doing it. You know, it's like, okay, what's well, just the simplest and don't try to too hard. And eventually, you know, I, I have actually, in a weird way, I have more faith in my left hand right now in terms of like hitting a line. Yeah. But I'm not trying to do too much with my right. I'm still like, I can make it further. It's one of the things in the sport that I'm surprised you don't see more of um, are, are people being able to use both hands. Um, well, I guess a forehand kind of takes that, that left to right motion that yeah, you've been it's looking true. for. Um, but I don't have a really good forehand, so it's nice to have something I know is going to finish right and all the mistakes are going to go right. You know, it's like that's where it's going to go. All right. So this um, is going to air on Monday. So okay. anybody listening to this, we'll just pretend that it's Monday now. But uh, <laughs> but so this Friday, you're playing The Living Room. Um, uh, it's next Saturday. Saturday. Sorry. Not Friday. Saturday. Yeah. No, this Saturday because we're in the future now. <laughs> Oh, this! Uh, <laughs> do you see what I'm saying? It's, yes, this Saturday, the 19th, I'll be at. Um, you just reminded me the South Park did a special, and it takes place in the future. Oh and yeah, everybody keeps referring to the fact that they're in the future. Yeah, we figured out all that stuff, you know, because we're in the future. We're now. in the future now. That's There's right. no more hate. There's no more. Yeah, we figured it all out. Anyway. Um, but um, it's, it's, that's um, uh, solo acoustic, but you said Ed will be there with you, right? Eddie and uh, I have um, uh, my friend Eric Sestaro is also going to play some uh, whatever you call those things you sit on. And Oh, the cajon. Yeah, he's bringing his cajon and he's going to play a few songs with us when we're trying to rock it out a little bit at the end. That's awesome. That's gonna. I. I I'm. That's uh, so exciting. I'm glad to see you out and playing and stuff like yeah. that and still doing yeah. it. Um, and just, I want to. I want to mention this. I'm. I'm not taking any money for the gig. I am putting it all, giving it right back to Laura Mann, who's, who's, you know, working super hard to make a place for local 
people to be able to play. You know, and I'm lucky enough, some people came out, you know, will come out to see me partially because of the Hooters thing um, for whatever the reason. But if she can get people in there because I'm there, uh, the money's going to her so that she can support some other artists who may, you know, be on tour or maybe new just starting up so that she can support them by having a place for them to play, a nice place that people can sit and listen. That's absolutely beautiful and incredible. Uh, that's, that's absolutely incredible. Andy, thank you so much for doing, not just doing this, but like I said, for inspiring the, the basis of this that podcast. That makes me really happy, Ned. I'm, I'm, I'm really happy that, that that came to fruition for you. And, and I'm a big admirer of people that make it happen. You know, it's one thing to have an idea. It's another to follow through and to make it real. That's, you know, that's the real stuff, man. So I'm, I'm proud of you in a weird way, you know, just to, oh, thank you, man. to do it, you know, it's not, because now you won't have any regrets. You won't, you will never have to go, I wish I tried that podcast. That might've been cool. Yeah. Yeah. No, you definitely. Have, now you have a history and a, and a, a you know, you've left a trail. I, 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 I put my, imprint, the mark. I put my imprint. There. Yeah. yeah. Um, cool. I will, um, before we end this, leave you with one thing. You have to get, um, the album, uh, up on some kind of Spotify or something. You got to get it out there because I, 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 there's, there are incredible songs on there that people should really hear. And I think people would really enjoy to hear. So that, that's my, that's my task to you. Make that cool. happen. All right. Well, I, uh, we'll try to take that to heart. Thank you very much for the kind words. My thanks again to Andy for joining me on the show today. Andy will be performing this Saturday, March 19th at The Living Room at 35 East in Ardmore, PA. Tickets are still available at thelivingroom at 35east.com. Doors are at 7 p.m. And my many thanks again to Dave Cox for use of the photo accompanying this episode. You can contact Dave and see more of his work at www.coxpicks.com and on Instagram at DaveCoxPicks. Please be sure to subscribe to the Yo That's My John podcast wherever you get your podcasts from. And don't forget, you can earn yourself a super awesome John Scout merit badge for citizenship of the world just by rating and reviewing us. Don't forget to visit www.yothatsmyjohn.com for articles, merchandise, and links to all of the previous episodes of this podcast. Like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash yothatsmyjohn for updates and live streams. Follow us on Instagram and Twitter at yothatsmyjohn and search Yo That's My John on the YouTube to find the Yo That's My John YouTube channel. Like and subscribe the heck out of that ish. We want to hear from you. Reach out, reach out, and touch some John. And, of course, as always, thank you guys for listening to this episode. Y'all come back now, you hear? Blue skies. Until next time, everybody. Hey, yo, displace the guilt and embrace the pleasure. Your taste in music doesn't have to be... Yo, That's My John is a Lonely Monk production written and produced by yours truly, Nate Runkle. Theme song by Phil Tyler Music featuring Nate 3.0. Special thanks to Fox Run Brands, DX Ferris, Andrew Scott, Natalie Runkle, and the incredibly brilliant and wickedly stunning Katie Daubney. If you or anyone you know has any ideas they would like to share or any guests they would like to hear on the podcast, please feel free to reach out to us at yo that's my john at gmail.com. 
Or you can leave an audio message for us and possibly hear yourself on a future episode by visiting anchor.fm slash YTMJ slash message. Until next time, be sure to displace the guilt and embrace the pleasure and shout to the world, yo, that's my John. <laughs>